meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is The Practice of Kindness. This talk was recorded in 2016 and is part of our podcast series on compassion and Tonglen practice. In this episode, we discuss the view and practice of loving-kindness. Meditation gives us more confidence in our compassionate and kind nature. But is this a practical way to live in the modern world? Today we are joined by Natalie Baker. Natalie is a licensed psychotherapist focusing on treating clients with conditions such as PTSD, trauma, anxiety, depression, and relationship issues. She has been a student and teacher of Tibetan Buddhism and Shambhala Buddhism since the 90s. Before we get to the talk, the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York is presenting Walking the Bodhisattva Path, the second course in our series of Buddhist study courses, for six weeks starting on October 19th via Zoom. This course is open to all. To learn more and register, visit shambhalanyc.org. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's Natalie to take away the discussion. Back in the 1990s, late 1990s, they made another very interesting discovery, which is they discovered these mirror neurons that make up the the empathy neural pathways. And when they made this discovery, what they found was that we can vicariously experience other people's emotions. We actually have specific neurons, right? So those are the wires of the brain that are designed for that specific purpose. So if someone falls and hurts themselves, right? and you feel that kind of empathic pain, that's a specific design feature of our hardwiring. Now some people who may be cynical may say, well, we just, you know, as creatures uh, have these mirror neurons and pathways so that we can really understand other people so that we can conquer them. And certainly if you have been watching the recent presidential debates, you know, you could make the argument for that. But actually, in the field of cell biology, We've actually discovered, not we as in me, but we as in cell biologists, that uh, the idea that 
Darwin presented that it is about survival of the fittest individual is actually uh, also incorrect. That over the um, 800 million years since we were single-celled organisms, the process of going from a world of amoebas to a world of trillion-celled organisms like us has actually been a process of the single-celled creatures discovering that working together made them survive. So if you were to imagine the New Yorker cartoon version of this event, a bunch of amoebas sitting around in a bar, and one of them says to the others, hey, Joe, you, you do the job of looking out for danger, and Bob, you, you do waste disposal for us. I'll pre-digest our food, and then we'll have like more free time to hang out. And that's actually what they're discovering uh, is the way that we've grown and evolved as organisms. A while back, the Dalai Lama started advocating for studying science and the science of meditation teaching science in monasteries. And I thought at first that was very curious. I was like, you have all these brilliant Buddhist teachings, and you're interested in doing like the Mind Life series, studying the brain. What's the brain like when we meditate and talking to scientists? And then over time, as I was thinking about this, I realized, you know, that we're very cynical in this day and age. And we don't just naturally trust. We need proof before we're going to move forward with something, right? Show me the evidence. Evidence-based medicine. Which, of course, that's, you know, that's good. It's fine. But it's hard when you're thinking about establishing a relationship with a spiritual path. Because that approach is different, usually. So the Dalai Lama said, maybe not. Right? Maybe we can use the methods that we are all more comfortable with, which is science and proof, as a skillful way to invite people into understanding meditation, their minds, the tenets of Buddhism, So I thought, all right, we'll start with a little science. So we are definitely 
organisms that are wired for and have evolved with the practice of kindness. In Sanskrit, they call it maitri, or loving kindness. Because right? if somebody just said to you, oh, just practice loving kindness towards all beings, you'd be like, oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> right? Like, especially like New Yorkers. That cynical side of us comes out like, that sounds really like nice where you're from. But here, right, that's not really going to convince us. So there's a couple things I want to say about loving kindness. Um, and then I want us to practice. Because really, Buddhism is about two things. It's about understanding, intellectually understanding. So they call it the view. There's a, there's a particular understanding of the way things are, which is different than how you and I habitually think about how things are. So that's one thing. So there's, we study teachings and the second part is that we practice and the emphasis is practice which means we're doing something different right so we're making an effort to do something different so I'm going to say just a little something about view um, and then we're going to practice So in our conventional minds, we usually think about <clears throat> being kind to somebody as kind of a good thing to do, right? It's nice, makes us feel better. I should be more kind. Right? I should just kind of work on being a nicer person. But that's actually not the view of the motivation from a Buddhist point of view. From the Buddhist point of view, the reason that we practice loving kindness is because it's actually uh, pointing us towards what's actually true. What's true that we may not be cognizant of or experience. So we're actually not practicing loving-kindness from the point of view of, I'm not really that good of a person, so I should really try to be nicer. <clears throat> from a Buddhist point of view, we're practicing loving-kindness because that's actually a manifestation of our inherent sanity. So the basic tenet of Buddhism that I like to repeat all the time because it's a hard one for us and it's really the whole reason why meditation works 
is that in our fundamental nature, right, who we are at our core, you could say, is uh, wisdom, sanity. Trump Rinpoche, who started the Shambhala Centers, <clears throat> when he used to speak with uh, people in my field in mental health, he used to talk about Buddha nature as fundamental sanity. That at our core, we are actually fundamentally sane. And that it can't be broken, it can't be perverted or destroyed. It's fundamentally awake. It's another way it's described. Basic goodness in the Shambhala teachings. Right? And words point to an experience. So this is non-conceptual in its experience. And a very common analogy is the sun. And what you and I experience most of the time, a lot of the time, are the clouds. But if it's a cloudy day, you never think, oh, we don't have a sun anymore. Right? That thought never arises. You just know, oh, wow, if I was in a plane right now and I go up through the clouds, then I'd see the sun and it'd be all bright. And ideally, that level of confidence, right, the confidence that we have that the sun never goes away, even if it's raining, would be the same level of confidence that we would have in our fundamental goodness. We may be having a really shitty day and sad or feeling confused or overwhelmed or whatever, but there'd still be a part of us that would know that there is wakefulness there, there's sanity there, despite what we're experiencing in this particular moment. So that's a goal that we have as practitioners, is that we could get that confident about our fundamental nature as we do about the sun being up there and that it's not about to go away. So, like the sun has qualities, right? It's hot, right? It radiates that heat. It's hot. It has radiance, right? There's movement. It's not a static, solid object. So, too, our fundamental Buddha nature, our basic goodness, also has qualities to it. And one of the qualities of our sanity is kindness. We're wired for kindness. Which isn't to say that it's easy to practice or that there's going to be some particular confirmation if we do practice kindness. 
But that's a quality of us as humans, that we are kind. It's part of our sanity. So from a Buddhist point of view, we're not practicing cultivating kindness because we think we're schmucks and we need to be better people. We're practicing kindness because it's actually more accurate about who we really are. And of course, there's all sorts of yeah buts and doubts that arise, right? When we say that, you know, yeah, but then there's that person, and da, da, da. yeah, but I don't really. And we just notice them. Lots of, lots of objections arise. So the other um, point I wanted to make before we practice is that um, we're, we're very habitual. And it's interesting, going back to the brain, the brain loves to be habitual. It loves to be efficient by just doing the same old things. Right? Conserve energy. So um, birds of prey, when I think of a bird of prey, I think of a bird like soaring through the sky. <clears throat> but actually birds of prey spend 90% of their time perched in trees. 90%. And the 10% of their flight time is purely to find food. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's like the brain. The brain's like that. It kind of just wants to like do habitual things to conserve energy. But the problem with that is that it usually makes us repeat a bad habit or bad habits, right? The basic bad habit is being in a state of not knowing and being kind of self-protective out of that uncertainty. So we're going to practice tonight working with this basic habit of ours, which is to be self-protective. New Yorkers right, don't tend to go out into the streets going, I'm just going to be really open to everybody today to see what comes at me. Now, we have our strategies, right? Our subway strategies, right? Don't look at people in the eyes. Stay focused on your object of enjoyment, if you have one, whether it's your music, your iPhone, 
your book, right? If there's strange smells, move away from them. Right? And that's all that kind of self-protective. What emotions do we experience? And you can just shout out your answers. What emotions do we experience a lot because of this habit of self-protection? What do we feel? Startled. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's the... What's the emotional experience behind startle? Fear. Yeah. Fear. Fear. Impatience. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think is underneath impatience? Like if we had to go, yeah, what's, what's usually underneath impatience? Judgment. Mm-hmm. And what's underneath judgment? Anger. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Fear and anger. Hi. Uh, thank you for the example of the um, distilling the fear and the sweat and, and judging people's reactions. I was wondering, have they done similar experiments with uh, like hormones related to love? Like, you know, the opposite and how a human being reacts to that. Well, you know, the, what, the study that's coming to mind that they did around love <clears throat> was the, um, and maybe some of you know it better than I remember it, so shout out if you do, um, where they, it was a, a Japanese study where they uh, took uh, vessels of water and then they attached words to the, the water. Do you guys remember this? They st- they, in a, a really good documentary, they mentioned this like, it's like 10 years ago. But so the molecular structure of the water particles changed based on the word that was placed on that uh, jug of water. And it, I would encourage you, if you're interested, to go look it up because it, it would show the water crystals that would form And so the water crystals that changed when the word love was pasted on the um, jar were these amazing, gorgeous uh, configurations of crystals. Do you remember that? Oh, um, can you bring the microphone? We, We have a name of the researcher who did the... It's the work of a uh, Japanese uh, researcher. His name is Dr. Emoto. Emoto? Yeah, E-M-O-T-O. He just passed away, I think, last year. Oh, wow. But you can find he had written two books on this. Great, Emoto. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to um, proof of the, the power of love, right, looking at children... Right, is a very immediate way that we can gain our confidence in what love does. Right? So when we are affectionate towards children, right, what happens to them? 
What happens? They thrive. Right. Yeah. What if you didn't get that? What if you didn't get love? Yeah. And so you try and create this warmth and it's very hard. Yes. That's right. We try and create the warmth and it's hard because that's not a habit we know. Yes. So if we didn't get a lot of love growing up, right, and we got a different feeling state communicated to us, then it's much harder to do loving kindness practices. It's much harder to accept a love and care from others. And we have to work harder. But it's worth it. It's worth the effort. But yes, it's harder. Besides like a lobotomy? <laughs> Can I have an emotional lobotomy, please? We'll just Actually it's very interesting. I was at my optometrist and he told me about a piece of research they're just about to start in Brooklyn. If you go past an apartment in Brooklyn and it's completely blacked out, you'll know this is where it's happening. So there's this very interesting thing that the visual center in a child's brain matures about age eight. And up until that point, you can give children who have this particular condition where the neurons aren't connecting well enough visually and so they lose a lot of their vision, you can give them exercises to do and it connects those neurons and then their vision really improves. But then once after they're eight, you can't do that so well. And somebody discovered, and I have to find out more about this, but that if you put a brain in complete darkness for 10 days, that it resets the visual uh, center. I guess they've done this with animals, so they're kind of thinking maybe humans. So they're about to start this study where they're putting 10 people in complete darkness for 10 days. I think they're going to have a high dropout rate on this one. And then what they're going to do is they're going to take them out and they're going to give them, they, they also have this particular condition where the neurons aren't connected so they have really bad vision. And then they're going to give them the exercises to teach the brains to reconnect those neurons. At least that's what they're hoping. So it's sort of interesting, right? Like, could we reset in some way so it's easier to take in the love? Right? And, you know, we really don't understand the brain very well at this point, so maybe at some point you know, will, um, I think that's probably why people, you know, become addicts, is they're trying to reset in some way. They're trying to shift out of that habit of feeling so badly all the time from neglect, as we call it in my profession. But... I think the point is, and I really, I say this to people all day, every day, it's valuable to make an effort. Like, we're habitual 
And our habits aren't so great, right? We follow our felt experience in our bodies as if they're true, but most of our felt experiences in our bodies, if we really look at them, aren't so accurate to the here and now, right? They tend to be a stress response reenacted a lot of the time. That's what we're doing. We're reenacting a stress response. So if we follow that, right, then chances are we're creating more confusion for ourselves because a stress response is danger. So to make an effort to practice loving kindness, for example, that's, that's time and effort well spent because we're practicing something new that's actually accurate to who we are from brain science point of view and also from a Buddhist point of view. So, you know, when we like have a hard day and we feel like, wow, that was a lot of effort to just not lose it, right? Well, we could say to ourselves, but that was great that we made the effort, you know, to be a little kinder, to try not to freak out when we wanted to freak out. Yes? Yeah, okay, I was just going to say, the, this idea of making an effort, this, this whole, I've been practicing this stuff for a while, and it's definitely practice, and uh, including tonight. So, but right, putting that out there, like the exercise that we just did, this, uh, I guess, the loving kindness exercise mm-hmm. towards others and towards ourselves, when you, you know, I felt like it put it, putting it up there right against fear, and I felt like, oh, wow, there's these two different forces, and it's like sort of this pulsating thing. And that's a learned skill for me is to come from my heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, in answer to that lady's question of what can we do, that for me, that has been something that has been very helpful as a practice. It's, I'm still practicing, and I'll be practicing for a while. But, um, but yeah, it's been, I, I'm sort of can, I'm agreeing from my own point of view what you're saying. Great. also in response to the one back here. Um, I also grew up in an environment with a primary parent who did not provide an atmosphere of loving kindness, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I do believe that it's possible to reset your brain in that way, because I think I did. And I think the way I did it was with a lot of therapy, <laughs> a lot of reading, and getting myself into a really healthy relationship, mm-hmm. marriage, with someone who, in a way, broke open the closures in my heart that were there for 50 years. So I think it is possible. That's great. I Thank recommend you. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But That's it, takes, right. it takes guts and time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay, that, it's okay that this doesn't come easy, right? That's not a bad sign. It's not a bad sign that it's hard. Sometimes it's not, but... You know, especially if there's fear involved, it, it tends to be take a little effort to work with it. This will be our last question, and then we'll have some refreshments. Oh, thank you. Um, I also wanted to share quickly before I ask my own question. Yeah. I had a beautiful teacher one time say that the only thing that opened her heart was her dog. <laughs> and, like, oh. there are certain spaces, I think, um, even small things that could just sort of blossom 
even in a small way, a heart that feels closed, um, even if it's a puppy dog. But my question was about um, when I was discussing with my partner about um, something, somebody that I fear. I think that um, the root of a lot of what I fear is people I don't understand. Um, and I think that relates to Donald Trump, it relates to his supporters, it relates to um, anybody who inflicts violence or um, very hateful behavior uh, to other people. Um, and I think often about my Angelou quoting, I'm sure somebody else about like trying to understand humanity in terms of like nothing human is foreign to any other human. Um, but I struggle to have that sort of compassion to somebody who inflicts violence or pain or um, in a way that I don't understand. So I was wondering if there was guidance in that space. Yeah, sometimes confusion is really loud or really violent. But from a Buddhist point of view, it's still confusion. So um, there is no fundamental evil in Buddhism. There's a lot of confusion. And our confusion is, has a healthy dose of fear, right? And we just see what we do when we're afraid. Stupid things, you know? And that's also part of our wiring, right? Is the fight response. And so sometimes, out of not understanding, right? And so then fear loves it when we can't have clarity, right? Loves that. Right, because then fear gets to kind of rule because there isn't any clarity. And then we'll do things that are violent to a person, to a group of people, right, to a country. But interestingly, from a Buddhist point of view, everybody, every sentient being is on the path, actually. They may be moving very, very, very slowly, right? Or you may think they're moving backwards. But the confusion is temporary. And if you read Buddhist liturgies, they don't talk about any permanent states of confusion. Interestingly, the only permanent state actually is Enlightenment, Buddha nature, fundamental sanity. So that's very interesting, right? We could chew on that and think about it and see if we agree. So Buddhism is not about um, wholesale assuming a belief system. It's about thinking about it and, and really looking at your own experiencing and deciding for yourself. But the t that's what the teachings say, and we could think about, like, really? Really, everybody is on the path, the spiritual path? Everybody's motivated to connect with their basic sanity. Interesting. And that confusion is temporary. Which means at some point, we will no longer be in a state of confusion but we will be living out of sanity, connection with Buddha nature. 
at some point. It's a good, it's a good antidote to our self-doubt that we could call this particular Buddhist teaching to mind and think about it. Really? It's temporary? This is temporary? It feels like it's permanent. Boy, I've been down this one how many times, right? It feels pretty like this is who I am, pretty fucked up. Temporary confusion. And so, you know, when you're practicing loving-kindness and you think about the people who are acting out tremendous violence in the world, that you could want for them to be less afraid, right? to be less aggressive, to be able to be calmer, to use different methods to try to negotiate. And that from a Buddhist point of view, doing this kind of practice where you think about people who are suffering, even when they're being very violent, from a Buddhist point of view, it is suffering. And that you could send to them like calm energy, peacefulness, right? Just like children, right? Children can get violent, little barbarians, right? right? No, no, no hitting, no hitting, gentle, gentle. I know it's hard to wait, but you'll get your turn, right? Basic principles. And then when adults like temper tantrum, it can be really bad. People can get hurt. Temporary confusion. Permanent sanity. That's it. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.